This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Open your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are experiencing marginalization in their society, in their culture. They're exiles, they're strangers, they're foreigners, they're, they're, they're aliens in this world. In a very real way, we as Christians are misfits. And uh, Peter's letter is a handbook of sorts on how to live the Christian life as an exile. One of the many things that Peter has to say to us is to keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Keep your conduct honorable within an unbelieving world. Holiness is an evangelistic strategy. He offers us hope that as people watch us engage with our world in ways that God calls good, that that will have an impact and influence in people's lives. Now, Peter's going to build on this idea today by showing us the importance of the public visibility of your faith. The public visibility of your faith. But before I get to that, I want to show you a story of how two men in our church, I think, are living out Peter's call to the church very well. Keeping their conduct honorable among Gentiles, and maintaining a visibility of their faith as they walk with Christ. They have been working with the Salvation Army down in Milwaukee to do this, and I'm going to show you their story. Take a look. Ministry happens anytime the love of God is applied to the need of man. We in the Salvation Army have just identified people with lots of needs. I'll tell you a story. Danny uh, Danny uh, was doing his fifth step with him, with me. That's when in, in uh, addiction recovery, someone confesses everything they've ever done. We were talking about his resentments. And he told me he was resent- he had resentments against his dad. I said, well, tell me, tell me about your first memory of your dad. He said, yeah, that was easy. About I was about four years old. And dad had a gun to mom's head because she had lost or used or sold some of his drugs. And, uh, and, and I thought, sure, he was going to kill her. And uh, eventually the cops came and took him away. First memory. How do, you, how do you get good from that? You don't get it in six months. I mean, you, it, it takes a it takes a lifetime of understanding what a what a father should be. There's something very different about taking a man who is working at getting to hell and and moving in the other direction. He gets his mind back and he gets his heart back. And I love watching as they they start to be able to feel again and they start to be able to trust again and love again. And then the next thing you know, they're able to reacquaint themselves with their parents or their children. Uh, Danny today has two beautiful children of his own. So it does work. Uh, but it takes a church uh, that, that's willing to, to roll its sleeves up and, and, uh, and touch people with leprosy. Uh, when you take someone like my friend Danny that I just told you about, uh, if he's just simply given the graduation certificate and we shake his hand and God bless you, uh, I'll see him again. And it'll get worse a second time. 
we need someone to come alongside of us to to um, to, to to create pathways to success. It kind of goes back to a conversation that Brad and I had and, um, during the height of COVID and everything that was going on in, with the George Floyd and all the things. I remember we were at um, our small group, uh, our life group, and you asked the question. You said, um, "What can I do?" What can I do? I remember you said it was like all the stuff crazy that's going on. What can I do? And I, then I threw out this idea about Golden Ops. When I worked for my old company, I worked on a McDonald's account. I was a supply chain manager there. We ended up uh, developing this partnership with the Salvation Army, um, McDonald's, and in my old company. And then I'm a friend of mine who has this mentor core. His name is Jim Hale. Um, we got together and de- developed this, this partnership called Golden Ops, and it was really about bringing men in to work at McDonald's and um, having a assigned mentor to them that would help them holistically transition back into society. We walk alongside men who have professed their faith in Christ and are looking for a mentor to just help them along the next steps. So, um, which, you know, once again, what can I do? Well, I can do that. The curriculum that Kurt brought to us is biblically sound and so that to me, it feels like ministry because we're pulling back to the Bible in every step. There is no, we, we never, we've never met a man and didn't talk about Jesus, right? I mean, that's where it starts. We're meeting the spiritual needs of this individual, you know, as far as having a relationship with Christ. We're also helping with some practical things, life skills, you know, budgeting and, um, you know, Putting, getting an apartment, getting their getting a, their their life set up, and that's part of loving a neighbor. And it's also what we're called to do as Christians, is to invest in others and be a light to others, and to share the good news with others, and help that person and encourage them and lift them up. We're not sitting here at Alliance Bible Church in Mequon with nothing to offer. We all have something to offer, and so pray, be open to what the Lord's prompting is and just do it, go. It's easy to sit back and come to church on Sunday. Maybe you're involved in a life group, maybe you're not. But what are you doing for others? How are you being used by God? We all, you know, to your point, we should pray and ask the Lord to, to, to direct us to where you feel you're being called to, to serve and, and be in ministry and beyond the four walls of, of ABC. Because there's a lot of folks out there that need the good news of what the Lord is, is doing and what he has to offer. I know there are more of you that have stories to tell, that God has called you into mission where you're doing gospel ministry similar to, related to what you hear from from Kurt and Brad. I want to hear from you about that. I want you to tell me what God has called you to, what gospel ministry has God employed you in. Ministry is bigger than what's offered on the website through our church. You're involved in stuff from week to week. Tell me what that is. I want to hear from you. You can email me at mymission at myabc.church and let me know what gospel ministry has God got you into. I want to hear from you. And if you want to hear more about what Kurt and Brad have been up to, they're going to be in the lobby after the service and they would love to, to share with you more about that. 1 Peter 3. 1 Peter 3. Peter's going to continue this theme Keeping your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. He's going to add the visibility of our faith. 
He's going to add to that. Let's look at this. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. In this passage, Peter kind of gives us a summary, a portrait of the exilic life, of the exilic life, characteristics of an exilic community, a summary. We're going to look at it in three headings. The uniqueness of our conduct, the visibility of our witness, and the certainty of our vindication. The uniqueness of our conduct, the visibility of our witness, and the certainty of our vindication. If you look at verse 8, there are five virtues that Peter lists. Five virtues, not randomly selected. They're like fingers on a hand. They relate to each other. They work with each other. They're in harmony with one another. Let me briefly explain these five. The first is, have unity of mind. This is not a unanimity of opinion. But oneness of aim and purpose. An inner disposition that says, we are all headed in the same direction, and we are for each other. The sympathy says what? We're to be a community that cares about the needs and the joys and the sorrows of others. Brotherly love. We're to be a community characterized by love for one another that is familial in nature, like the family. Remember, church is not an event you attend. It's not an event you attend. But it's a family you belong to where you show up for dinner, not because you like what's on the menu, but because it's family. A tender heart could be translated as compassion. Um, the original in, the, in the, the, the Greek, it's the word splankna. 
It literally meant the organs, the innards. It's the word for compassion. In the Gospels, it was aroused in Jesus in context where he observed people in need. His guts were churned over that as he watched people in need, particularly in spiritual need. Where it would be a community that is others-oriented. That is, humility isn't just thinking of yourself less. It actually creates a proactive mindset that says, how can I contribute to the good of those around me? Five virtues, like fingers on a hand. They relate to each other. They work in harmony with one another. They they head towards a common destination. Now look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter shifts suddenly from talking about how we're to be with one another in the church to our conduct among the unbelieving world. What is the relationship between the two verses? What is the relationship between the two verses? I think it's this. I think Peter's trying to establish the fact that we cannot live Christ with Christ-honoring competency within a non-Christian culture if we first don't take care of business among us. That is, Peter's juxtaposition of verse 8 with conduct within the worshiping community and then believers within the unbelieving world in verse 9 is meant to show us that what God asks of us as Christians in the world grows out of the ethic prescribed in verse 8. That is, fostering gospel community among us is a prerequisite to having the resources to bless those who revile us. Now, as you read verse 9, it it can't be surprising to you that Peter was a disciple of Jesus. There should be no surprise there. You hear Jesus' voice in Peter throughout this letter. Verse 9 is one of those places. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You hear Jesus' voice in Peter, don't you? Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Do you hear it? 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says, Bless those who revile you. What is the biblical concept of blessing? What does it mean to bless those who revile us? You know, in the Midwest, we don't really use this phrase, but in the South, you'll hear, well, bless his heart. You've heard that. But when someone from the South uses that phrase, there's no blessing in that. What they really mean is he's an idiot. What does it mean to bless those who revile us? Let me tell you something. It's not thorough or accurate enough to say it means to speak well of someone who has reviled you. It actually means to ask God to show his favor and grace upon someone. To bless someone is to pray for them. So no, Peter is not saying when someone mocks you because you're making decisions that accord with your faith in Christ, you're supposed to respond by complimenting their talent or their dashing good looks. No, by virtue of being a Christian, God has called you to pray for his favor to be upon them. Pray for their spiritual well-being. 
I think this is a profound way of handling the derisive comments from an unbelieving world. Peter's saying, mount up to God in prayer and ask that he would show them favor and grace and that he would change them. But I would also contend that it's more than praying for them. Because don't you think it'd be possible to clench your teeth and pray for God's favor and grace in their lives all the while bearing ill will toward them in your hearts? That's not true obedience to this verse. You can't truly bless someone while inwardly desiring their hurt. In order to truly pray blessing upon a reviler, there has to be something about our entire posture towards them that will enable us to go beyond praying for them. There was a Bible teacher who was teaching through 1 Peter, and at this juncture in the book, she turned to her class and said, what do you think? This is what she writes. She says, when I asked students in class one day to come up with specific, practical examples of how someone might bless an adversary, the story was shared of a Christian soldier living in a barracks with his unit. Each evening, when he would read his Bible and pray before retiring, he was reviled and insulted by the soldier across the aisle. One night, a pair of muddy combat boots came flying at the Christian. The next morning, the hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and ready for inspection. Several soldiers in this company eventually became Christians as a result of the inner strength of one who could return blessing for insult. Do you have an adversary you can bless this week? Do you have an adversary you can bless this week? We, the church, are called to demonstrate a uniqueness of conduct not found in many places within society today. The main thrust of this is incredibly important for us, particularly in our time. We cannot allow the hostility of secular society to creep into our church community. That's first. We cannot allow the hostility of secular society to creep into our church community. Nor can we allow the hostility of secular society to provoke us to retaliate in kind. To be able to do this demonstrates a uniqueness not found in many places in the world today. This is the uniqueness of our conduct. Second, the visibility of our witness There are ideas expressed repeatedly in 1 Peter that are concentrated in verses 13 through 17. I want to sum those up for you. I'll put them on the screen for you. It's kind of the thesis of Peter's entire book, but it's also concentrated in these verses. That's this. We regularly suffer rejection and scorn. We must do what is good, even if our goodness provokes our suffering. Suffering is to be due only to our doing good, not evil. Because we suffer for doing good, we are blessed. And our lives must witness to our hope because Christ's triumphant resurrection foreshadows our future. These themes are all found in verses 13 through 17 into 18 and are the thesis of Peter's entire book. This is, by the way, he's speaking of Christian suffering. This is not a treatise on suffering in general. 
You know, like when you get sick or when you get injured, you hit your thumb with a hammer, stub your toe, or you're a Vikings fan. It's, it's, not, it's not suffering in general. It's Christian suffering. He's talking about the kind of suffering that Christians experience because they are Christians. What I find very interesting is that whenever Peter comments on the suffering of Christians, on injustice, the suffering of his people, the persecution of disciples, what he always does is he turns to Jesus' life to make sense of it. And he decides that if Jesus can suffer unjustly, his disciples can too. The force of Jesus' moral example in 1 Peter might be more prominent in this letter than any other epistle in the New Testament. So if there's only one thing you take away from this series, let it be this. And I talked about this last week. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life. Some people were attracted to it. Others were repulsed by it to the point of crucifying him on a cross. And Peter is saying to you, so shall it be with you. So shall it be. Living a genuinely righteous life will attract some and repulse others. Just make sure, Christian, you're being maligned for righteousness sake. You know what I mean, right? If a believer seems to have a number of enemies, persecution could be the cause. But it's also possible that the victim is earning enemies the old-fashioned way. You know what I mean, right? Through some form of knuckleheadedness. We cannot confuse the trouble we deserve with the trouble we do not. But if we live by God's standards, we will never quite fit into any human culture. This was true of believers living in the Roman Empire where Christians' allegiance to Jesus as Lord and refusal to worship the emperor could be taken as a sign of dissent. Today, there's almost always a moral cause with Christians in the area of ethics, particularly today in sexual ethics, in which biblical Christians take the minority view. To the secularist, the Christian position might sound judgmental, intolerant, or bigoted. And so we attract displeasure. Now, there's something happening in these verses, and really throughout 1 Peter, that we can't lose sight of. It's staring us in the face that we may not see it. The righteousness of Christians is visible to the unbelieving world, it's public. In all these places, he's talking about the fact that Christians are going to be maligned, you're going to be reviled for what you believe and what you say and how you live. And of course, the implication of that is Christians, we all have provided the unbelieving world with content to revile. We've all provided them with something to respond to. It's out in the open. We don't practice our followership of Christ behind closed doors or in the privacy of our own homes only. Jesus has always intended us to follow him publicly. Now, for me, the icing on the cake in terms of the visibility of our witnesses is a new idea in this section in verse 15. The idea is the need for Christians to be ready to give a public defense of their faith. This is one of those verses I memorized as a kid, but I didn't notice 
I didn't notice this about it until I was prepping this message. Peter really leaves me with an impression here. The impression is that he feels it is important that those who marginalize, alienate, or persecute Christians should not do so in ignorance, but in awareness of what it is they are marginalizing. He's leaving me with an impression that as we are reviled or mocked or scorned for what we believe and how we practice the the Christian life, that those who are doing this to the Christian community should not do so in ignorance, but in awareness of what it is they are reviling, of what it is they are alienating, of what it is they are marginalizing. The sense of it is, okay, well, listen, if you're going to disparage me for my faith or the fact that I follow Jesus or the implications of that, you should at least know what it is you're disparaging. So let me tell you. If people are going to marginalize you because you're practicing your faith publicly, then you need to let them know what precisely it is they are marginalizing so they don't do it in ignorance. You know, going back to the example of sexual ethics, it can be very easy for Christians just to say we are for this and we're against that. But unless the why behind it is communicated, the world isn't going to have even a fighting chance at understanding the reasons for our position. And of course, the why behind any ethical admonition in the Bible is always what? The character of God and the person and work of Christ. The why behind any ethical admonition in the Bible is always that. It's the character of God and it's the person and work of Christ. Paul Ackmeyer put it this way. He says, cultural isolation is not to be the route taken by the Christian community. It is to live its life openly in the midst of the unbelieving world and just as openly to be prepared to explain the reasons for it. Ten years ago, Beckett Cook was a gay man in Hollywood who had achieved tremendous success as a set designer in the fashion industry. He worked with stars and supermodels from Natalie Portman to Claudia Schiffer, traveling the world to design photo shoots. He attended award shows and parties at the homes of Paris Hilton and Prince. A decade later, Cook has moved on from that life. And he doesn't miss it. What changed? He met Jesus. On a momentous day in September of 2009, while drinking coffee with a friend, Cook started chatting with a group of young people sitting at a nearby table, physical Bibles opened in front of them. And they invited Cook to visit the church. When asked, what was going on in your life that made the soil, so to speak, ready to receive the gospel seed? This is what Cook said. He said, it was a moment at a party in Paris six months earlier. I just felt empty. I had done everything in Hollywood, met everyone, traveled everywhere, yet I was overwhelmed with emptiness at this party. It was one of the most intense, is that all there is moments in my life. I had already been wrestling with questions about the meaning of life, searching for it in all sorts of ways, but I knew God was never an option because I was gay. It was off the table. 
I wasn't confused what the, what the Bible had to say about homosexuality. I knew it was clear, but I was still searching for meaning. So when I came to this coffee shop six months later and saw that group of young people with their Bibles open, I started asking them questions. They explained the gospel. They explained what they believed. I asked what their church believed about homosexuality, and they explained that they believe it is a sin. I appreciated their honesty and that they didn't beat around the bush. But the reason I was able to accept their answer was because I had that moment in Paris. Five years earlier, I would have been like, you guys are insane. You're in the dark ages. But instead, I was like, maybe I could be wrong. Maybe this actually is a sin. So I was open to it in the moment. And then they invited me to church. Maybe we should take some of our Bible studies on the road, eh? Cultural isolation is not the route to be taken by the Christian community. It is to live its life openly in the midst of the unbelieving world. And just as openly to be prepared to explain the reasons for it. Your followership of Christ is meant to be public. Third, the certainty of our vindication We see this in verses 18 to 22, which whenever I come across passages like this, sometimes I just say, you know what, let me just boil down the the takeaways of this. But inevitably, I'm going to have people coming up to me after the service say, well, what does it mean? So we've got to just do a little quick Sunday school class, okay, on verses 18 to 22. Congratulations, you are in the most difficult to understand passage in 1 Peter. And some commentators have said it's the most difficult passage to understand in all the New Testament. So here we go. How do we understand verses 18 to 22? This is talking about Noah and the spirits in prison and baptism. And what is all this? Let me give you the, let me boil it down. Some have understood the text to refer to Christ's preaching through Noah to those who lived while Noah was building the ark. So Christ was not personally present, but spoke by means of the Holy Spirit through Noah. The spirits obviously are not literally in prison, but refer to those who were snared in sin during Noah's day. Others have understood Peter as referring to Old Testament saints who died and were liberated by Christ between his death and resurrection. Still others understand the imprisoned spirits to refer, as in chapter 4, verse 6, to the sinful human beings who perished during Noah's flood. Christ, in the interval between his death and resurrection, descended to hell and preached to them, offering them the opportunity to repent and be saved. Most who adopt this interpretation infer from this that God will offer a second chance to all those in hell, especially to those who never heard the gospel. The, the logic is if, if salvation was offered to the wicked generation of Noah, surely it will also be extended to all sinners separated from God. Another perspective, which seems to be the majority view among Bible scholars today, is that this text describes pro- Christ's proclamation of victory and judgment over the evil angels. These evil angels are talked about in Genesis 6, 1-4, to the passage of Scripture that immediately precedes the account of Noah. These evil angels had sexual relations with women and were imprisoned because of their sin. The point of the passage is not that Christ descended into hell, but as in chapter 3, verse 22, his victory over evil angelic powers. Have it open in front of you. Let me, let me talk through how I see this. Okay. 
First, notice in verse 18, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, this made alive in the spirit doesn't mean that Jesus didn't have a physical body. Paul is able to talk about spiritual bodies in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't think that that's what he's, uh, this is just a spiritual existence for Jesus after his resurrection. That's kind of a, a tangent to the point. The, the, the point of this is verse 18 delineates the timing of the occasion. After Jesus' resurrection, he went and proclaimed. Now, this word for proclaimed is not the word associated with proclaiming the gospel. It's a generic word instead used to simply make some kind of declaration. He went and proclaimed to the spirits. Who are they? Well, let's keep reading. These spirits did not obey in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, who was supposed to obey in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared? Sometimes we forget that Noah didn't just build an ark, that he preached. 2 Peter 2.5 and Hebrews 11.7 talked about the fact that Noah preached. For a hundred years or more, while he's building the ark, he's preaching. And while he's doing this, he's enduring the, 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 the mocking derision of the world around him for building a boat in the middle of a desert. So I think the logic of the text is the spirits in prison after Jesus' resurrection, are those people in Noah's day, now in hell, who did not respond to Noah's call to heed his warning about the coming judgment of the flood, because Peter immediately then tells us only eight were brought safely through it. So this triggers in Peter's mind another parallel. Noah and his crew were saved through water. Not from water, saved through water. The very water that brought judgment and drowning also lifted the boat. Peter draws another parallel, saved through water. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Now, as we looked at previously, in the minds of the New Testament writers, repentance, faith, and baptism were closely associated with one another. Part of one whole process. The water in Noah's day was both judgment and salvation. The waters of baptism symbolize both as well. How, is it, how does it symbolize judgment? You go down in the water, you're dead with Christ. That is the judgment of your sin. You're coming up out of the water, you're raised with Christ. This is your salvation. Now step back just a little bit. Why does Peter's mind go to Noah and then baptism. What relevance would this have for people in the situation they're in? Exiles, foreigners, sojourners, strangers. What relevance does it have for them? What relevance does it have for us as exiles? Well, notice the parallels between Noah's day and Peter's day and our day. In Noah's day, there is a very small minority of people who believe the word of God and pursue righteousness against a broad culture that does not hear and receive the word of God. This was very much the case in Peter's day. Noah was righteous amidst a wicked generation. He witnessed to those who were around him and was willing to be mocked for it, insulted for it, as Christians in Peter's day are called to bear witness to the truth of Christ and suffer for it and be mocked for it. In both cases, judgment was impending. In Noah's day, in the form of the flood. In Peter's day, in our day, we'll see this next week, in chapter 4, verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
And in both cases, the righteous are saved, vindicated, approved by God. And the evidence of that vindication for the believer is baptism. Now, whatever your take is on this difficult passage, I think eventually we'll all get to the same place. Christian, you have no need to fear that suffering for the sake of Christ is the last word. That the loss of social acceptance is the last word. That the alienation you've experienced for following Jesus in this world is the last word. You share the same destiny as that of Jesus Christ, who has secured victory for us over hostile powers. I get how you feel. Peter's saying, I get how you feel. Right now, it feels like we are a small, embattled minority living in a hostile world. But you can be sure that just like Noah, your future is secure when the judgment comes. Dr. Jamie Aiton is a cancer survivor and a Christian who researches how people respond to trauma. And she writes about how striking it is to observe how people who may suffer nearly identical loss respond in very different ways. She had a colleague who was deployed to help with a relief agency after Superstorm Sandy hit the Northeast. And while she was there, she met a man whose roof had been completely blown away in the storm. And this man really surprised the relief team when he responded in a very different way than how most had been responding. The first words out of this guy's mouth as the agency approached him, his team approached him, says, sometimes you have to lose the roof to see the stars. You know, at no point in time in Peter's letter does he create the expectation that things are going to get better in this life. That's something we have to accept. At no point in time does Peter create the expectation that things are going to get better this side of heaven. He's saying time and again, you're going to lose your roof. You'll get it back on and then it'll blow away again. Or you're going to lose your job, or social acceptance, or economic freedom. But Peter's saying, I I want you to see the stars. The happy ending that, that fairy tales convey is not the restoration of these earthly things. That's not the happy ending. No, the happy ending, the stars, is being brought through death and judgment to be seated with Christ where you will rule and reign with him forever. Sometimes you have to lose the roof to be reminded that God has something even better in store for us as his sons and daughters. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would operate from this perspective. We know how the end will play out. We know. I pray that you would grant us 
faith to believe with certainty. We will one day rule and reign with your son. And God, I pray that as that promise becomes real to us, that it would energize our public witness. I pray we would be eager to practice our faith openly with all gentleness and respect. And as we do, prepare us to respond to opposition by praying for the spiritual transformation of those who are repulsed by your son. We are the body of Christ. And because of that, we are meant to be his presence in the world and image him to the world. A world that desperately needs to meet him. So we ask you for your help in fulfilling this heavy, deep, and profound calling. Through Christ we pray these things. Amen.